0: On that Dr. Umar energy.
1: <laughs> What's up, everybody? Engage Podcast. We are here. Y'all missed the y'all missed the, the pre show, man. It was it was wild, but we are excited. It's been a, been a little minute since we've been here. We had to take a couple weeks off, different things, work, uh, traveling, personal things. But we are excited to be back. This is episode twenty, and we have a familiar guest with us who I'm gonna let uh, Doc Smith introduce. But before we do that, as always, got to take care of some business and pay the bills, So make sure you follow us on Twitter at the Engage podcast. Make sure you like our Facebook page, subscribe to the YouTube page, continue to push the messes out. Today's gonna be another episode like we always do, giving out free PD. And so I got the fellas with me, so we're excited. And we're gonna do check-ins. Uh, so I guess i give you guys a little preview of my check-in. So I wanna appreciate and shout out everybody who showed some love. Uh, today has just been about prayer and water. And that's it. As I try to better myself, not just for my daughter, and my students and the people that uh, that I serve, but also just myself, and put better energy out in the world. So I'm a little drogy but I got my boys with me. I'm excited to be here. So that's how I'm doing. Uh, Ball, what about you, man? What's going on? Uh,
2: I'm good. I appreciate you sharing with us. Uh, you know, being being open with the world about your know, experience right now because that's real. You know, each each of us are in a different spot. So um, that's that's important that you share a little bit of accountability. But on my end, man, it's it's good. You know, I'm, I'm busy just like everybody else. You know, we're coming towards the end of the school year. And, you know, as as we prepare, you know, as as principals, you know, we, we got all the things, you know, we got one foot here in this year. This year, a foot next year, and just all the work that goes around that. While we support our students, while we support our staff, so I'm, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited for the opportunity to uh, have our guest on again today and just dig into uh, to his thoughts on educational equity. So, uh, just excited for y'all to be with y'all tonight.
1: Good looking,
0: Grand View's finest. What's good, people? What's good? Hey man, I'm, I'm geeked to be back. You know like I said, we you know it's been uh about what, four weeks since we last been on. Uh we gotta take a little break. We 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 grind hard for about two months there with the guests, and now we back with another stellar guest. Uh hey man, I'm, I'm riding high, man. I got I, I ain't gonna put all my business out there, but I, you know, just made some grown man moves here recently. Uh made some grown man moves out here recently. So uh we get ready to start t- state testing. So I'm excited to see what that's gonna be like next week. Um, getting my staff ready to go for next year. Um, I, I lost a a stellar teacher who's relocating to Illinois. So I'm kind of bitter about that, but uh, I wish her nothing but the best as she moves on to Illinois. Uh, she was a dynamic first year teacher. Um, and just to see her grow this year was an amazing thing. So shout out to Miss Kapler as she uh, relocates to Illinois. They definitely got a, a diamond in the rough with her because she's an amazing teacher. So uh, just to say what's up to the people in the audience? You know, that's good. And then I just came off uh, doing a presentation. I got to shout out my man, Ball. Uh, I did a presentation this past yep. uh, Saturday with the Liberated 2020 co- 2021 conference, and Ball happened to be in my breakout session, so we co-facilitated together. Talked about our last episode, we basically turned that into a whole uh, breakout session, um, engage or engage, empower, and encouraging parents. So shout out to Ball for stepping in and helping me co-facilitate that this past Saturday.
2: Yeah, shout to the woke aunties for uh, coming on, being our get- last guest and, and and feeding that, feeding that opportunity.
1: All right, so Doc, let them let know who our guest is. He's he's not a stranger to yeah, the he's, show.
0: He's not a stranger to the show, but let me give you a little bit about uh, Dr. Howard Fields and how we kind of cross paths. So last year, um, I had the, the honor to be a part of the Missouri Leadership Academy um, and, and learned a lot, you know, made a lot of connections. One, Beth Huff, who we had on the show, uh, had a chance to work with her and, you know, her become a mentor of mine. But... Um, Howard, Dr. Fields, was actually the facilitator uh, of my breakout group that I was in. You know, shout out to all the rest of the rabbits out there Um, and the uh, death march that we went on that night out in the wilderness in the middle of nowhere to like two in the morning. Um, But uh, Howard, you know, Dr. Fields, we got a chance to kind of just rap and talk. And um, he introduced me to the Black uh, Male Educators St. Louis movement that he was doing. Um, Had a chance to kind of do some work here in Kansas City under that umbrella. And then he, he blessed me with the opportunity to be a part of Voices Volume 1. You know, we talked a lot about that on the show, and uh, shout out to them because they've actually got volume two out now. So he's doing big things. But today we brought him on to talk about his first solo book, uh, his first solo book, achieving educational equity. And I had actually had a chance about three weeks ago at the Missouri um, Association of Secondary Principals conference to hear him present on his book and his topics. And I was like, "Yo, we got to definitely get him on to talk about this because the thing, the work he's doing in educational equity." Um, it's about to take off. It's going to be nationwide. I mean, it's an amazing uh, thing. So we'll give y'all a little bit, you know, of the preview and then y'all y'all can hit him up and, you know, pay him them dollars to come out and talk to y'all still do district because, you know, we we're giving you the preview for free, but not the whole thing. So, uh, Dr. Fields, we appreciate you joining us again. Uh, You'll give a little people a little bit about your background, and who you are before we jump into the discussion.
3: Absolutely. Uh, first and foremost, thank you for having me, uh, Brother Demetrius, Brother David and also Brother Bashan. Um, the work that you all do on a daily basis, not even just uh, with this podcast, uh, but all of us have had days, long days at that and still having the energy to continue this moving, moving forward. So first and foremost, I appreciate that. Um, today, I, I stand before you, I sit before you as Assistant Superintendent of Human Resources here in the St. Louis area. I'm also the co-founder of BME STL, which is Black Males in Education St. Louis. Um, I am the co-founder of um, um, eduopenings.com. Again, eduopenings.com, where educators find jobs, professional development and freelance work. But in addition to that, we're gonna be connecting some small businesses and minoritized businesses at that to purchase services within the education field. And so we are very excited about that. I'm also a, a avid learner. I'm um, an avid breeder. Um, I had a chance to meet Brother Vetschon in the woods. You didn't tell him we 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 were in the woods and we were learning. And uh, I I was scared actually. I don't do the woods like that, so I stayed close to Brother Vetschon. Like, hey, you know, they gonna have to take two of us as opposed to just one. And so, again, it was some it was some fun work. Uh, one of the things um, that I am um, so so indebted with. Uh, we talk a lot about our movement and moving forward, and so I'm just as passionate as other folks I've met in the education field. However, um, the year before I met Besson, I, I met um, Brother Daryl Diggs. And so Brother Diggs and I, we both run administration here in the St. Louis area. And I took it personal that I didn't know his work as a black male who was obviously dynamic and speaking about a lot of the things he was going through. I certainly saw myself in a lot of his remarks and vice versa. But I took it personal that we didn't know each other because St. Louis is small, administration is, is small, and black males in education, we're, we're not necessarily um, making up a, a vast majority of the field. And so we connected, and right after we connected, uh, months later, we formed BME STL. And I share that as my testimony because all of us, if we want to go you know, quickly we'll get started and do this work, but if we wanna go far, um, we have to have a squad together. And so I also bring it up because all of us are one or two individuals or connections away to continue to do great work for young people. And so again, those are just some of the dynamics that I'm excited about. Um, Daryl and I, in addition to all the other work that we are doing, um, you may know us from Voices, Volume 1 and Volume 2. We are the co-founders of the State of Black Educators Symposium. Uh, We were the co-founders of the Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, Anti-Bias, and Anti-Racism Memorandum of Understanding. And so I say all of that to say we we have our our, our footprint in a lot of different uh, pieces related to education. But more recently, uh, we've um, embarked on this journey of the intersectionality between music and um, education. And so we started off with um, easy equity, uh, basically how oversimplifying equity and the harm it causes using easy ease music on one axis and then the education field specifically, um, educational equity on the other axis. This past Saturday, we did the same thing with Lauren Hill's music, the miseducation of education, and we looked at student experiences. Well, I bring that up because I'm before you talking about educational equity in a book because of EZE. Like I would have never thought uh, one of NWA's finest would be a-, a vessel for me to have my first book. And it was in that presentation and I was asked to create a definition. We all use definition with regards to educational equity, but I didn't feel at that time there was anything very practical for us to really push on, specifically speaking of policies and all of that. And so that definition and that presentation, I mean, it was very well received. Afterwards, we got so much love that the next day I just went to the lab and started writing. And um, February the 21st was the um, first day I started to write with the book, April the 9th, it was released. It's already been identified um, by um, Amazon in terms of one of the newer books. We reached number one a few times, but also not just with Amazon, but some of our local bookstores, specifically I see me here in the St. Louis area, a Black-owned uh, business here doing very well, and some of the other local bookstores is doing very well. And so I'm, I'm truly humbled um, by the reason why I'm here, and I'm excited to be on the show. So one of the things that I, I want to
0: start the show off, you know, just conversation off with um, in your presentation that you've done you know you you started out a lot talking about the, the picture i know I'm, I'm gonna give the description of the picture i'm pretty sure everybody's seen it but it's the the the, the uh, picture with the the kids looking over the fence and the crates and they talks about you know you know do we give everybody the same amount of crates or one person more crates? Or do we just remove the fence altogether and stuff like that so what i would like to do to kind of just start off with is get your perspective or the definition um on what is equity versus equality because that's one of the things i know people still continue to struggle with with those two things i just want to kind of hear from your perspective on that topic
3: absolutely well in the book and since i've been doing um the presentation i define um educational equity as such creating and or eliminating policy systems and practices in schools that impact the experiences outcomes and access to resources for previously excluded groups. Again, when we talk about students from previously excluded groups, I'll talk about that in a moment, but um, I wanted to focus on educational equity being actionable. We may do a lot of different things. We may read books, we might have book clubs, uh, we might march, but if we're not creating or eliminating these systems, these structures, these these policies that continue to uh, perpetuate a lot of inequities that many of us experience as students, and many of the students who sound and look like us continue to experience to this day, um, then we're really not getting to the essence of educational equity. So I started off there. When I talk about outcomes, we talk a lot about outcomes. Um, in the past, we are just starting, in my opinion, starting to talk a little bit more about access to resources. But what about those experiences that our students are having? So that was uh, the middle piece. And then the last piece, would, which was very intentional, would be those students from previously excluded groups. Um, we have used terminology such as um, um, underrepresented, right? And And underrepresented does not adequately convey what has happened. And the analogy I've been using is that if I wanted to get students on our track team um, and I'm not seeing enough students who identify as male on my team, then I can easily say, hey, we have underrepresentation of um, those who identify as male on our track squad um, because they didn't come out or or something else going on. And the burden is really not put on me as a recruiter. Well, that's essentially not happening in educational spaces. Uh, many of us have been previously excluded. We were not allowed to be in some of those advanced classes. We were not allowed to do some of these things and have access to resources. So that terminology was used intentionally. And the, the image um, that was put up, uh, frankly stated, um, I think it, it helped us have conversations with the kids standing on boxes and there's a ramp, there's a variation of it. Um, but at the same time, it does breed deficit model thinking. Like I can give these kids some Amazon boxes to stand on and see the game and and we good. It's it's not that at all. And again, it's not beating up the image as much as it's just like all of us are researchers in some regard. We have to keep pushing and moving forward if we want to do the work. And so with that equality piece, um, everybody is getting something. Um, They're getting the same thing. And I think the premise of that in certain contexts is okay. But when we're talking about um, equity, um, the image that's up now to the right again—it's a reference point, but it does breed deficit model thinking. So, when you say deficit model thinking, like,
0: what is the next piece beyond that? Then, beyond that—that—that that, that mindset, how how do we as educators continue to push ourselves to go beyond just giving kids those boxes?
3: I was talking to a um, <clears throat> a group of um, college students who are about to graduate pre-service teacher teachers, and I think their heart were in the right place and they were talking about um, a number of different things and one question in particular really led to the piece was you know I don't I want to help our kids but how do we help our 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 black kids that are struggling and again I I know it did take some um some courage to bring that up but there right there lies the problem we have automatically assigned a a color um, and a narrative to kids who are struggling I've met a lot of students, and I've never met a student who did not have more gifts than they had struggles and challenges. And some of the struggles and challenges are some of the the measures that we use to quantify success or lack thereof in our field. And so my thing is, and we talked a little bit about this with the Lauren Hill Miseducation of Education piece this past Saturday, um, one of the things is we have to find out what students do well, and then we go from there. Many of us on the screen, we've been involved in evaluations, and, and we do evaluations all the time. I want out my brother Beth, brother Veshana, and ask him on, on uh, camera, is he up to date with his evaluations? But when we have our evaluation meetings, we typically start with the, with the positive, or what you do well. Like, that's what we do as adults. That's what we expect. But we don't do that with our students all the time. We automatically go to what they don't do well not taking into account some of the other variances that may um contribute to that and so i'll get very practical here let's just say we are assessing reading right we're talking about reading and research clearly suggests that if it's a book on fishing more than anything related to that student being able to answer questions about fishing may not go to his his or her comprehension in fishing You can have a student who's on the the lowest reading level possible but if they have experiences or if they have a schema with fishing grandparents parents etc they will knock out a lot of those various different questions with regards to fishing and we're contributing that to reading comprehension and it it doesn't have much to do with reading comprehension as much as it has to do with their experiences now if you take that example and then we start talking about the world that our students live in and what they're accustomed to Um, it is not equitable and it is not even, and it is not the same for all kids, regardless of where they come from, to be assessed on their prior knowledge. And so when we start looking at these kids who may not have experience with skiing and may not have um, experience with your traditional household or may not have experience with um, the more Americanized notion of what life is supposed to be like for elementary school students, essentially we start looking at them within the context of we have to provide them with supports for them to read better or do math better and all of that when really what we're doing is trying to provide them with supports to be more representative of your traditional customs as it relates to education And, and that's again i wanted to go practical with that because We're not looking at the gifts that this person provides. We're not looking at all the things they do well. We're certainly going into those other dynamics. And then we're putting a label on this kid. And then we're putting a label because it correlates with uh, many of the students who sound and look like um, the people on this screen. So those are just some of the layers that we're talking about when I talk about deficit model as opposed to asset-based models and using what they do well and the skill sets that they have in order to go with the output that we are looking for.
2: So Dr. Fields, I'm going to follow up real quick because um, this really speaks to two conversations that I had as in my intro, I'm talking about us preparing for next year. And I had explicit conversations about, all right, are we going to have intervention classes next year? And immediately that goes to places where our students are failing. And you, I mean, you spoke right to it. You know, we have that mindset that, you know, we have to, we have to prepare our students for this, traditional type of education, but we're not looking at, and, and again, it goes, I think it goes to some other things that we've been talking about on my master's scheduling, but taking, the, having that approach, like, well, we have to have intervention classes. Well, why can't we address what these students do well in these different areas? And it's not necessarily the ELA or math. They might excel in these um, electives that we have and, and things like that. But we're just looking at these three different classes that we deem as an educational system as the necessary tools. Not that that those experiences that they have in real life that they can really, they really have shown their strengths in. So that just spoke to me and I just wanted to touch on that and just thank you for, for, for sharing that with us because that's something that we, we don't typically have that that growth type of mindset when it comes to where we're starting with a lot of our students.
3: In addition to that, Brother Demetrius, um, that's why I struggle a little bit with the notion of learning loss on one continuum. We talk about getting our kids ready for 21st century learning skills, problem solving, creativity, et cetera, et cetera. And I can almost guarantee you if we were, if there was a 21st century assessment, our kids would just blow it out of the water. There would be a lot more schools shutting down, a lot more virtual pieces. And we also push this notion that all kids or the majority of kids are not thriving virtually. And that couldn't be be further from the truth because we have some kids out there that this is their thing and they're absolutely flourishing um, because of a lot of different dynamics. But because of the way we frame things all the time, we have this belief system that many of our kids, unless they check a particular box, they're gonna come to us again next year, the year after, and all of that with all of these deficit areas. So automatically we have given um, our staffs a, a, a license rather to be able to say low expectations for kids. And we're doing it in the context of being uh, empathetic, be empathetic. You never know what they're going through. They didn't, you know, read as much. They didn't do this or whatever. And and when we're talking about that axis of high expectations for kids um, and allowing them to tell us what they learn and how they learn, some of our kids have essentially received so much information. They have certification, doctor degrees, and all of that by virtue of this pandemic. And they'll be able to tell you everything there is to know, not just with this antiquated model that we have of schooling. So we have to push on this belief system and give our kids a microphone. In other words, give them the voice to let us know what have you learned.
1: That, and then I want to just to that comment that came up there about why is there no growth mindset when it comes to black and Brown kids, right? I feel like, the low expectation of black and brown kids is a multi-million dollar, probably even billion dollar industry, right? Because there's a lot of money that can be made off of this idea, right? Dr. Fields, to your point, that black kids aren't thriving in virtual learning. They're not They're not being successful. They can't be successful because of all these other things. But to your point, if we ch- if we ch- framed it differently, right? The way in which we looked at it, it's a ball's point, right? Instead of saying, we're going to have an intervention block, right? know we do a thing called success period now right now it's focused on you know intervention but we want to add a component for those kids that are thriving right Right. maybe there's a chess club maybe there's a you know i don't know knitting or something that goes to the interests of kids to help them stay connected to the kid, an art club right and a music club and different things like that because it's playing on the strengths of kids and not always the deficits of kids and i feel like that's the piece too about when you think about the quality things, we're going to give all the kids a 30-minute block for intervention. Well, not everybody needs it. Equity is saying, okay, you might need the 30 minutes of reading, math, whatever, but you, you know what, you're doing great. I see you have a love for art. Let's continue to foster that love of art because that could be your scholarship. That could be your ticket or music or even PE or different things like that, right? You might have a really good basketball player. You know what? Your grades are rocking. Let's go in the gym for 30 minutes and work on your free throws, right? Something like that, like that piece. Mm-hmm. I think it changes the mindset of how we look at our kids. but. That idea that the mindset is low is because the industry, right? How we see how we, how how kids are viewed is like more money can be made when we when we see less of them.
3: I said it this weekend um, and a while ago that when when we're talking about disrupting systems, there has to be a fundamental understanding that you're not just disrupting systems you are disrupting someone's pocketbook, you are disrupting someone's Birkin bag, which essentially their role is there to help our kids get more accustomed to American, uh, traditional American customs rather. And so I would love to be out of a job because when I'm advocating for, and when I'm trying to empower folks for, there's no need for that anymore. I would love to be in a situation where certain kids, um, because they can check the box of um, receiving special education services, because they qualify for free or reduced uh, price meals or because they're black, brown, et cetera, that there's no longer a correlation that they won't do well with the way that we're assessing school. I would love for that not to be the case anymore. But you have to understand, keeping people where they are and not liberating folks is a big business advocating for equity as opposed to making e- equity practical or vastly different dynamics. And mm-hmm. our system, unfortunately, has shown that we are going to continue to advocate for those things, but the action piece is not going to be there. It's going to be missing. And that's the reason why the book focused so much on the practical application of actually doing something, not thinking something. Thinking something is fine, but you can't think your way into non-oppressive measures within a school.
0: So I want to jump on that part where you talked about that actionable part. I mean, like I said, we do a lot of talking. You know, we have a lot of PD. um, You know, we do a lot of meetings to meet about meetings and stuff like that. And there was something that you said um, in the presentation that I heard you speak when we were down at the lake that uh, kind of resonated with me when you talked about secure your mask first. You know, and then you kind of went in and talked about from the teacher level to the building administrator level to the district leader level, what this work looks like and what you can do that are practical things. So I was wondering if you could just kind of give us a piece of that. You know those components that you talked about and kind of give people some what they can do tomorrow to kind of start in their own area no matter if they're a teacher all the way up to a superintendent to kind of help in this work
3: well absolutely in the book um as i keep focusing on that practical piece and i want folks to hold me accountable with that practical piece and one, one of the things i talk about is a six-step piece and the first question is am i being complicit in educational inequities that exists um, in my organization, and that's actually a trick question because the better question is, how am I? You know, it's not a are you, it's you are, right? And so what I did was all of my experiences from the teacher level, from the principal level, from the district level standpoint, and then also from a statewide system policy educational system, what are we looking at? So I break down how I was complicit in each of those various different areas. Then in the very next chapter, I talked about what application would sound and look like in each of those various different um, areas. I think following that um, chapter, um, I have a a piece on there about um, equity audits and I don't like equity audits historically, but I like this one because of two reasons. Number one, it forces you to go deeper with equity. So equity is a term that we can all use. But with the Achieving Educational Equity Audit, it focuses on equity within the context of declarative statements, you know, mission, vision, all of that. Improvement plans, so strategic planning, compass plans, all of that. Governance, board um, dynamics, policies, administrative procedures, all of that. Um, communication learning, grading-slash-feedback, data-slash-outcomes, leadership, professional learning, Interviewing, decision making, expenditures, continuous improvement. So we have this blanket statement for educational equity, and rightfully I understand that, but you have to be able to drill down. And when you drill down, you will understand that we all have influence. So let's just say in your within your organization, you have a CFO, right? And with, with that CFO, this person may not engage with students, and they may not engage really as much with teachers. They're all about purchase services. Well, in a truly educational equity field or uh, looking at the audit or you having conversations with your vendors about what they believe as it relates to equity diversity other areas um what what are their hiring practices how can they support with us bringing in more um uh, workers that or have been previously excluded themselves etc cetera, etc cetera. so we have to drill down more and more and so that Sean's earlier point or whatever i also expand on that because we all have influence and one of the difficult things about our work here we're so quick to give up our influence right so the the teacher can say well i would do this but i'm not the principal and the principal will say well i would do this but central office central office say well i would do this but the Superintendent. The superintendent said, Well, I would do this, but the board. And the board is going to say, I would do that, but this community. And so we keep passing the buck and keep doing those things, not taking that internal view in and understanding, even if it's a small ripple in the pond, that we're utilizing our voice and our perspectives to be able to advocate and be able to empower others for educational equity. If you throw enough rocks in the pond, it's going to eventually create a wave. And then we can ride that wave and get some work done and get that momentum, is at least the way I frame it.
1: Hey, Doctor Fields, can we can we stay to that point that you were just talking about? Because you said something, I started thinking about my own network. When you got your CFO and your COOs, right, who aren't in some cases, or I say in my case, if not educators, right, never taught in the classroom, anything like that. How do you have those conversations with them to understand that their role, right, does? play a part right so you talked about the the idea with the cfo and and purchasing and things like that about are they vetting vendors in that case the same thing with the CEO. how do you do those things if you have non-traditional or not educators in those roles
3: i think i try to be proportional to my ears and mouth i try to listen as much as possible if i can get someone to sit down and have a conversation i think that's a massive step forward Mm. um a lot of people will say well i'm talking to this person they're arguing they don't they don't agree with me we're not getting anywhere that's not the worst thing. The worst thing would be those folks that don't want to engage. Like, they'll look at you, they may not their head, but they're not saying anything or whatever. And I'm not saying anyone who would do that, they're not taking all of this in because we all have variance in the way that we process. But having said that, if you're going to sit down and argue with me or sit down and share your perspective or at least engage um then we can get somewhere not with me proving my point but with us at least talking and having conversations i think it's so important that we go back to those declarative statements because all declarative statements regardless of the organization will speak to ambitious goals and it's aligned with policy that we won't discriminate so if we have this fundamental notion that we will not discriminate then let's bring in the data that's all we got to do it ain't rocket science let's bring in the data and let's say are we able to predict based off how someone shows up in our school how well they're gonna do i don't care where you are public private parochial higher it doesn't matter the answer is we haven't gotten to that point and so then from that conversation well why do you think that's the case why do you think that's the case brother demetrius to your point you mentioned um expenditures so i'll go there and i'll read verbatim out of the book on page 107 if i may i said are educational equity efforts adequately funded? Review the expenditures of the organization's initiatives. Where does educational equity efforts rank? Are the consultants and resources used to further educational equity efforts within the organization paid At a commensurate level to other efforts the organization is committed to i'll stop there and i'll pause if you see all of these are questions these are thought-provoking questions that you could take one go into a meeting let's just have a conversation about that i will say the reason why that's important in this um, example is this we may say hey we believe in equity well show me the money. You know what I mean? I'm, I love hip hop. So I'm going to say gangsta boo. Shout out three, six. Where the dollars at? Show me what the dollars at. Where they at? So if I'm looking at the money and the expenditure and I rank all the things that are important to us with money, and then I rank everything that's important to us with our declarative statements, is there alignment? And if there's not alignment, then I'm going to say, okay, we believe in trauma, or we believe in this, but why are we spending 600% more for this than this when we're saying this is the most important? So we have to drill down and have those conversations. When we bring Brother Vashon in or, or Brother Demetrius in in this example or whatever, are we not compensating them at the same rate that we would compensate somebody who's coming in to talk about restorative practices and all of that? It has to align, and if not, then we essentially have some work to do. So, so to the question initially, ask those questions, have those real conversations, and then bring in the data to support what we're trying to do. One of, the,
0: one of the things I want to follow up on, like I said, we have a lot of teachers that, you know, tune in and some school leaders. And I would like for you to jump into, like I said, I'm all about that practical example. Sometimes I think we talk when we talk about equity, we talk about like this pie in the sky thing um, that's hard to obtain. But there was an example that you gave once again when I heard you you know, speak on this um, at the conference that I thought really drove home for me. And you talked about I believe it was the, the field day and kids not turning their homework policy and how you you know, dug in and really questioned that. And that, I mean, just that move there is something that you can do at a smaller level that addresses that equity piece that wasn't going on. So can you talk a little bit about that example?
3: Absolutely. So one of the um, examples that I had provided was um, at this particular conference, we were talking and the answer is yes to am I being complicit, right? And with me being complicit, As a teacher, I'm new, I'm brand new. I'm a physical educator. Everyone loves me. I have the class that you would typically use as leverage. And what I mean by that, if Johnny Susie, whomever does not complete their work, you don't go to PE or you don't go to that class I know you want to go to, right? And so I was being complicit because I was just like, okay, that's fine. Um, there's nothing inequitable there. And so I really started to take tally and see who were the kids who were not being able to participate. And all of those kids look like me, like that, that's a problem. And so I paused there because it's, it's hard for people to understand that legally speaking, you can accidentally discriminate. It's called adverse impact. You can accidentally discriminate. So I may not have malicious intent, But even if I don't have malicious intent, but I'm rendering an output where all the kids that check a particular box or the recipients of this, I'm discriminating. You can call it whatever you want, but I'm discriminating. And so what I saw was that, okay, this isn't working. What we did, we had to look at a structure and no longer were kids able to sit out for physical education, they were getting a grade, they were this and they were that. And so that was a a smaller dynamic, but again, I was a first year teacher. I didn't call it equity at that time, but we were doing what was right for kids. Now we emerged from there and started to have the conversation about no longer using field day as some type of dynamic where unless you're perfect for the week or the month or possibly even a year, you're not getting a chance to participate in field day. Now, again, that same notion was happening. Well, we have this mental model sometimes that um, inequities are just basically standing up with torches and saying, you know, bad things about people. That's the notion that we have. And sometimes that's not correct. We are essentially doing things that are harming said groups of kids and we're not being reflective on our practices. And then once we can admit, most people can admit the inequities that are happening in their space, but doing something about it making someone upset, causing a a conflict or having a type of relationship where you can push on your department leads or your um, grade level folks or even your administrators, most people don't want to do that. And I say most intentionally. I found that educators, we are so strong, but at the same time, we struggle with trying to challenge our colleagues about things and practices and situations we're putting in front of kids. And so That whole dynamic, yes, I lost friends. Yes, there were some people that didn't um, speak to me in this instance. When I turned into a principal, it was the same thing. Um, if you're serious about this work, you may see a, a massive decline in the things you give for Principal Appreciation Day, but that's none of us went into education for that. We went into education to have impact for our, for our kids and what we're trying to do. And so um, the best reward that we're ever going to receive, I don't care your salary, I don't care anything you've received, the best reward you're going to receive is when you see a student years later that will say, you made a difference in my life, I appreciate you doing this, or... You have inspired somebody to do that. And that's what one of the things I enjoy about the book. People are reaching out and my work and my beliefs and all of that. It's impacting kids that I will never have a pleasure and staffs that I will never have a pleasure to interact with. And that's the work that we all have to do. And the piece that I want to you know, highlight there where you said.
0: You you can not have malicious intent and still discriminate against a group of people. And just a quick story. I remember last year as a first year principal, you know, when we started to really track our bis movement in the building. And this is one of the you know, ways we look at um, basically not having discipline, you know, not having kids suspended. So it's a model of discipline that we use. But Anyway, when we track the movement. And that semester, you know, we put up the data on the number of how many buddy room movements teachers had. And on one particular team, there was an average of about 12 movements, but one teacher on that team of four had 90 by herself, you know, and it was that data that, you know, we drew, we drilled down deeper into that and said out of that 90, 60 of them were black males. And out of that 60, 40 of them was three specific black males and really talked to her about like, what are you doing to intentionally build relationships with those kids? You know, mm-hmm. and re- and hacks her to really challenge her practices when dealing with that. And like I said like I said she wasn't being malicious in any, it, but if we didn't have that data to say, look, this is what the data's bearing out. Mm-hmm. So obviously, you might not intentionally be doing this, but it's happening. Yep. And to say, like, I mean, to see her transformation, I'm don't get me wrong. She she was pissed off for a minute there that we put her on a spot like that, but after she got past the emotions of it, and we started to really undergo her with actual practices to build relationships with those young men. Her, her classroom instruction then took off because she was no longer having that discipline issue. So that's the piece that I, like that data piece I think is very important that sometimes we as leaders miss. We go in with what we think is happening or what we, you know, we don't have that actual hard data where we can take the emotion away from it and say, this is what the numbers bear out. So I think that's the part I just wanted to highlight.
2: Dr. Smith, can you dig into that a little bit more? Like how do as a as a school site principal, how do I figure out? Like I I got the data, you know. I present that to a staff member. How do we get them to the point where they're open to receiving that?
0: So, um, I mean, it was a difficult conversation. So what I did, I did it whole staff. So basically, I put it up by team. So I put up team one. Here's all the buddy room movement that you've had, and it was it. We just put up bar. I wanted to put up names, and my IP was like, don't put names on it. Just put up, you know, the bar graphs. Which is funny because within thirty seconds of it being up, everybody knew who the teacher was that went with the bar graph. So, but anyway, and then we also, uh, con- we compare that to the number of referrals that teacher had as well, and you know to look at the correlation between buddy room movements and office referrals. And it was, I mean, it was a direct correlation. The more buddy room movements you had, the more referrals you had as well. Um, but it was the teachers on that team when they seen what was going on their team, they went to talk to those teachers who had those outliers. And then those teachers came to us and was like, okay, we have these outliers. What can y'all do to help support us in the classroom to build relationships? So it really wasn't, I mean, we were on the back end to provide support, but we relied on the teachers on their team to say, hey, we got we got an average of 12 buddy room movements over a semester on a team, but you sitting out here with 90, you making us look bad. So, you know, what can we do to support that? So then it was them coming to us and said, what can we do? So that's kind of how we did it. Um, like I said, I still think we should have put the names on it, but they figured out who the names was anyway. <laughs>
3: You, I'm going to bring up something. You probably don't even remember this. This was from um, OLE. um, And we had the best team ever. We really did. But this goes to the notion of what you were stating in terms of accidentally doing things. So this was a, there was an activity, right? And the activity you had to go in, I think he knows where I'm going with this. (laughs) That was an activity. And essentially, we had to create something. And they couldn't talk. And so what we said was up to, let's just say, one of the persons on your team, they are trying to sabotage what you're trying to do. And everybody else is on your squad, at least one. Right. But they couldn't talk. And so someone would go out and they would talk and tell them what it was. But you had to second guess everything because you didn't know who was trying to sabotage and who was what. Well, I'm sitting there watching and I listen. That's that's my perspective. So Brother Vashon came out and then, you know, he he went a few times or whatever. So then he started to get these looks. So I'm watching. I'm like, oh, yes, yeah, it's, it's about to go down. So so Vashon and I were the only ones in our squad that there were uh, people of color, black in this instance, I believe. And um, one of the things came up, they said, well, I, I don't know if I can really trust him. And then the comments that just kept going. So it was my responsibility. I said, well, what do you mean? Like, what do you? You know, whatever. Is it because it is because he black? You know, but it was it was like a. it was a trigger. And Bashar, tell me if I'm if I'm lying, it was a trigger. And so what I did was after that, um, the conversation continued. And in our debrief, I said, listen, it. your intent is one thing, but what you said was something else. And I can only go by what you said. This isn't I'm not beating you up or anything like that. But I'm letting you know, as educators, how many times we accidentally say something and we're. You know I don't believe anybody had malicious intent, but I had to say something. Now, still to this day, I still got people in that group. And they don't even speak to me, <laughs> speak to me. But it had to be said, and that goes with the notion of we can accidentally discriminate, but we can accidentally exclude. And that's one of the pieces I want to go with. That we accidentally exclude so many students, we accidentally exclude so many staff members, and then we wonder why those students or staff members leave our organization or leave the field entirely.
0: And with that, just real quick, Dad, that's I got it because and the whole the every activity we did, there was some takeaway we had to take away from it. So for this one, there was this thing called a phantom rule, where we in our head make up, you know, the staff member that's not going to buy into what we're doing. And that was the thing, the reason why I felt, you know, when I presented this information to staff, I had to have that data. I didn't want anything to be left to ambiguity, you know. Um, and I think also in that that moment, you know, it was a learning moment for those people who didn't know. That they were using that terminology, you know, or we don't trust him just because he is, you know, because I'm I'm being completely honest. Some of them were like, yeah, we, we don't. He might be the person that sabotages because he's the only black person in the group, you know, and, and it, can, it took time for them to sit back and really reflect and say, Dave, am I, you know, th- what biases am I bringing to the table, you know, in the environments that I'm working in? So go ahead, Dave.
3: Yeah, we ain't talking about race no more that whole trip. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But the, to the real that's how it always happens, right? Once once you have that one awkward moment, it's like, all right, we're not doing this again. So, Dr. Phil, something I want to I ask you, and I'm going to ask this whole group, but, you know, Ball and, and uh, Doc Smith, they know where I'm going with this, because you talked about doing things possibly accidentally, but having, you know, a larger ramification. So a, a conversation that we talk about um, a lot, I tell them, I tell them one show is, we are in the process, end of the school year, looking at matriculation of students. Right? Are we going to pass students on, or are we going to retain kids? Right. And so I brought it up in the show. I think I mentioned it that you know, as of, as of now, you know, as it stands today, we do have kids on a retention list. Right. And and a lot of people are saying, right. And it's been brought up that it's not it's not equitable to retain children during COVID. So my thoughts is this. And you have kids. So our school of the 205 days that we will be in the school year, if we stay on the pace that we're at and no more interruptions, 175, almost 180 of those days, we would have had a majority of the kids in the building in person, not virtual. Right. So there's not this idea where half our school year has been virtual. We just have some kids that if we continue to put them in or we if we move them on, we're going to pile gaps on top of gaps. Right. And you got to kind of take a step back in order to get kids to move forward. So we do have a, a small list of of kids that we are looking at retaining. But again, I have the final say. So it's definitely something I open with. So I've, I've talked to a lot of people. If you don't mind, I would love your thoughts about the idea of retaining kids specifically during this period, this covid period during this time. Do you think that's the right thing to do is it equitable right what, what are your thoughts on that if you can't answer
3: great question i think my uh, perspective on retention um as a curriculum instruction and assessment enthusiast is certainly a passion of mine um i think my perspective on it remains the same as even before COVID, And that is this um if in fact taking this student through an experience that is going to uh, significantly enhance the possibility or the probability that they will be successful moving forward then it's at least a discussion right the problem oftentimes is this though how we determine if in fact our kids are going to do well the next year is not accurate, we, we don't know. That's one of the issues. The second of which is there's an assumption that it's going to be a new effective strategy or a new effective teacher or a new effective system that is going to be able to impact them so much so that we will be able to reflect and say, that was a great move. I believe in the bell curve when it comes to teaching. There are some astronomically amazing teachers. There are some that we need to transition on. But in the most part, you know, we we need to support some folks, and they can do what they need to do. For the most part. But when we look back at the the data, and when we look back at the experience, and everything that we have with regards to attention uh, retention in a normal year, it does not render the output. That would align to our belief system or our fixed belief system that more is going to help. So in this case, when you look then at data suggesting retention, my question would be a better question. Why are we retaining right now? Like what data point are we looking at? Like it's if if these students, for instance, if the students that we're talking about or whatever, I mean I say these in particular, because I'm not going to assign which students we're talking about, but if the students that we're talking about, If it's a situation where they just were not online, then are we retaining them as a punishment because their home life dynamic didn't allow them to be online? Or is it a situation where based off of our our teaching structure and what we were assessing in a COVID year, they didn't meet the expectation. Those are the questions that we have to have conversations about before we start talking about retaining a kid and and giving them an opportunity to come back when 9 times out of 10 A lot of times the second rendition of learning doesn't even top the first experiential um, experience in this regard. So that's my issue with um, retention, rather, and COVID. Now, understand my response. I'm looking at it from a pre-K all the way to 12, right? I'm looking at pre-K through 12. If you ask me specifically about elementary, I can drill down there, middle school, and then secondary, because it is a lot of variance between all of those experiences.
1: Yeah. And and I think and I, I'm going to get ball and docking this too, if they don't mind. We're not using it as a punishment for kids not logging on, or even the one that you have in traditional years when kids that have attendance issues, they say, well, I'm going to retain the kid because they ain't come to school. Well, yes, attendance is a data point, but did you look at how that kid performed, right? And so when you have elementary, typically in kindergarten and younger grades, if a, if a kindergartner doesn't know their letter sounds, right, then it may be more difficult for them to do the first grade curriculum. Or if they are struggling with foundational reading in first grade, it may be more difficult as they move on to chapter books and more comprehension in second grade, right? That's a little easier. I think when you get to fourth, fifth, sixth grade, it does become a little more difficult where you have to look at the data. But I I feel like, but then you have people say, how are you going to retain a five-year-old? Well, you know, if the the student does have some gaps, right, it does keep them from from getting, having access to the next grade level curriculum. I think that always has to be the question. But the main question is, if by retaining this child, will they be successful? If the answer is no, then like you said, retaining them, it does nothing but destroy their morale. But I also feel like like moving a kid on that's struggling, you can do more detriment because that you're going to continue to pile that kid on a failing grade after a failing grade. But again, I'm, I'm open to it but we're not using I think it
3: summer school. I think summer school and weekend academies mm-hmm. and all of that have to be part of the conversation as well. Like if we're yeah. talking about a teacher being able to be with a kid for the whole entire summer, <laughs> I would question it. I mean, I would say, actually, the the learning loss that we keep using in a traditional year that's going to be smaller if we're being specific in terms of a lot of the cute things that we used to do in school that has been exposed due to COVID. Like we realized exactly how much time we were wasting with these nefarious different activities and none of which got to the essence of what we're trying to do. So now that we appear to be very streamlined or more streamlined in our approach, what would summer school and what would some of those other dynamics sound and look like as opposed to saying, we're gonna pause your learning, We're going to bring you back a lot of times to the same structure. You know how kids are. I mean, if they (laughs) feel like it's something personal, they won't learn as much as we would like for them to learn. And so we put you in this case in a classroom with the same instruction that was not working for you the first time. We give you a 2.0. And then in this instance, the teacher will feel better and say, yeah, I taught them more when the evidence of data doesn't support that.
1: Absolutely. So, Ball, Doc, you guys are middle school because they know I'm – Dr. Fels, I'm an elementary, so our school is K-6. As middle school, particularly in this time, what are your thoughts about retention? And we're talking – let's talk about this year, right, because it's a different conversation than other years. What are your thoughts around this equity piece about retention and retaining students?
0: So I'm not going to restate everything that you already said about the whole team. I just want to add two things. First of all, my thing I'm first looking at is what is the standard we're using to measure the kid's success? And do we really have a truly defined standard of success? Because I think a lot of times we have this, you know, very subjective measurement tool, you know, that we're using to measure the kids being successful. So that's the first thing is, what are we using to actually measure this kid as being successful? And then the other thing I want to say is, I don't want to have the definition of insanity, meaning we're doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. So hypothetically, let's say we have three teachers that teach on this grade level and we're going to retain this kid. If the other two teachers, didn't have success with lower level kids. What is the point of us putting this kid in that class next year? Because they're not going to have success with that kid either. Now, if I got a stellar teacher that can do great work with kids with deficits, maybe then, yeah, I can put them in there and that teacher's going to have some, some success with them. But if, if like Dr. Phil said, if we're looking at teachers on this bell curve
2: mm-hmm. and
0: the teachers we're talking about putting this kid classes, they sway more to the lower end of that bell curve. It's not going to be beneficial to put that kid back in that grade level in that class. And I want to shout out my AP, because uh, my, my, belief, my belief is just like hers. I believe intervention is more effective than retention. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that we're going into next year that we're going to really put, push is the core plus more. How can I give kids their core instruction plus, plus more yeah. to fill, fill those gaps, but also to accelerate my higher level learnings at the same time? So we're implementing Bulldog Block, which you talked about, Dave, a little bit, y'all success mm-hmm. hour or whatever, where we'll have time. In the day for every grade level, every kid, that if you have some deficits and some errors, we'll have time to fill those gaps. But if you're on grade level, we have time to push your thinking and enrich your learning at the same time. So that, so my two Love things, that. what is the standard that we're measuring it against? And secondly, if you got a teacher that's not going
3: to be successful with that kid the next year, there's no point in putting them in that grade level again. Yeah. Well, because that retention piece, ahead, yep. I, mm-hmm. I would say that intervention piece that I've seen a lot of times, we are the cause of some of our students not doing well because this whole notion of tier one versus tier two, you mean to tell me the tier one instructor, which is that classroom teacher. or that course teacher, will basically. Allow somebody else who oftentimes is less qualified, take this kid and no more is it tier one. We're calling it tier two, but they're not getting tier one. You can't just skip and go right to tier two and you haven't had tier one. That that doesn't make sense. So we're having somebody, whether it's an aide or, or somebody else who's who's less qualified, no disrespect basically be responsible for tier one and tier two and then we throw our hands up like I don't know why Johnny Susie whomever isn't doing well like those are some of the structural things the process things that we have to look at when we're really talking about possibly retaining the
1: students and and Bob before you go that that might be a show right that the the importance in the in understanding interventions right because doc to your point if you had a team of three and this kid was struggling and you had a rock star teacher, then at some MTSS meeting or some intervention meeting, someone would have said, this kid needs to move. And if you didn't do that, then I agree that we shouldn't even have retention as a conversation. But that's that piece. If you're not running a kid through an MTSS process, one looking at tier one, the core instruction, then put it in the intervention, right, whatever that is, and, and following it through a cycle and involving the parent and everybody like that, if you're not moving through that piece and just saying, this kid can't learn, so let's just retain them, then that's the issue. So, Ball, you're Real thoughts, quick, go
0: before, ahead. before Ball go, because that was, I, Dr. Fields brought up a great point, and that was one of the things that we looked at when we talked about doing our Bulldog block next year, is I don't want somebody else doing my Tier 2 instruction. I want that core teacher doing Tier 2. Exactly. So, so when we're doing our Bulldog block, it's the core teacher providing that Tier 2 instruction as well. And then if we have to drill down to Tier 3, then we find the time to make sure that core teacher is doing it. I don't need to bring it. Now, I do have a reading interventionist who used to be my ELA teacher, who knows his reading specialist, but I want court teachers a part of that tier two instruction as much as possible.
3: Absolutely. But today, before we go to brother Bob, one more thing, um, brother David, I said this earlier, like to your point, somebody would have saw that. Yes. A lot of times, most of the times people say that I'm like, I'm sorry. Most of the time people know that, but when it's time to say something, we're looking at each other like we're shooting free throws, you know, <laughs> in the words of Mur- Murphy Lee. So Man. we have to then, once we know something, say something and then do something.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I- I'll just be real quick. I think that in my district, we don't re- we don't retain students. Mm. Uh, I-, I think that intervention piece is something that's really critical. But I want to go back to something you said, Dr. Smith, as far as what's the assessment tool that we're using? Mm. Because, you know, we look at our grades when I've been in other districts and, you know, the kids that we have on our DNF list, they're on that list because they're not turning in work. not It's not based on what they know and what they don't know. It's based mm-hmm. on them turning in work. So we've been doing a lot of work. Um, this year we had uh, Rick Warmerly come and do presentations in our district about, you know, grade reform and how we do that. Because, unfortunately, that's the indication that we're using uh, to end up failing students. And, It's not an indication of what they can do. It's just an indication they didn't turn the assignments in. So, you know, and from my aspect, we really got to look at that system and that structure about how we're assessing students and determining whether or not they're meeting the standards. And if it's not clear and we're just going on arbitrary what's being submitted and what's not,
1: we don't know what the kids know. That's a, that's a good point about those grades. I've seen a lot of kids get retained because they have multiple Fs. But then when you pull the, the assessment data, it's like, well, dang, they, actually, they pass, right? You know, I, I got a kid right now who struggles with attendance, right? His grades are low, but in Dibbles, right, he's blue. So it's like, are we going to retain him because he has two Fs? No, nah, he's blue in Dibbles, right, and, and using all those. We need to ask the question, why is this kid not coming to school? Right? Why does his or her parent feel like it's not important? Right? That's more of the conversation. So I just want to
3: triangulate try- those data pieces because mm-hmm. I did an analysis before and. In theory, if you had, if you were advanced on an assessment, um, you would then have an A, and then your your other measures, interim benchmarks that we use would be aligned. That's not always the case. And I felt that there were places where kids who were advanced may have had a C or a D, and a kid that may have had an uh, A in the class was below. So you got to triangulate all of those pieces when we're talking about making decisions on kids, some of which are anecdotal, uh, many of which are not.
1: So the moral of the story is the Timely Summit retention policy is to be continued. So I, I want to thank you guys for <laughs> giving me some thoughts. But I, again, I wanted to throw that out there. It was brought up by the, uh, our producer who dropped it in there. I thought it'd be a good, a good kind of conversation. So, Dr. Smith, I know we get to the end, but I know there's, there's there's one more piece. Or you know, we wanted to provide Dr. Fields with an opportunity to talk, have a little more about the work he's doing before we close out. Yeah.
0: So, Dr. Fields, you know, we, we always kind of wrap the show. Like I said, first of all, we love having you on. You know, you always come and drop Mad Wisdom. So we do want to give you the platform, uh, give you the solo screen so you can kind of, you know, do your thing and take, a, you know, whatever it is you want to go with, you know, promote the book, you know, the work you're doing. Um, So, just you know, it's, it's your time to kind of talk about all the things that are on Dr. Fields' mind. So and then we'll come back and do the wrap up with, the, uh, with us three. <laughs>
3: Well, first and foremost, again, I appreciate being in the space. Uh, shout out to the producer. Um, you know, it's the funniest producer I've ever met by far. Don't pump
0: his head up. You all want
3: part of the pre, so <laughs> I'm, I'm actually waiting for, for this to close so we can go to the post show. But uh, but now, in, in all sincerity, though, um, I enjoy this work that we're doing. Um, one of the things that I don't talk about as much, but it is in the book towards the end is um you have to know who you are within that authenticity piece, um, within that um, walking in your 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 why, right? And so my why is evident in the book. Um, it doesn't matter what else is going on. I have a responsibility to use my platform to make sure we're moving and and doing what we need to do for young people. And, and that's what I believe. And so by doing that, I feel so fulfilled. There isn't a salary, there isn't a job, there isn't a title that could provide that. You have to have that intrinsically. And so this book is is certainly a, an opportunity for, or a plea rather, for us to move forward in more practical educational equity matters. Um, shout out to the whole BME STL. Shout out to um, Brother Diggs. Uh, without Brother Diggs, I'm not here right in front of you. Shout out to um, Dr. Moore. Tammy Moore, that's that's part of my professional support system that we're moving forward and we're doing this work. And so I'm incredibly humbled by these opportunities. Uh, When I say opportunities for someone to read the work and feel like that inspired them uh, or someone to read the work and feel like they want to do a book study or some actional pieces with their staff, I mean, that's a humbling feeling. And so I'm certainly appreciative of that. Um, you can catch me on Twitter at HeFields3. If there's anything I can ever do uh, for you and your organization, uh, please let me know. But also, make sure you just take care of yourself. There's a lot going on in schools. Um, there's a lot going on in our profession, and if you're not taking care of yourself or whatever, um, you will mind up leaving, and we don't need that at all. And so, again, I, I truly appreciate the opportunity and the space to be here. How to achieve educational equity is doing very well. I appreciate it. Um, and again. Thank you.
1: So I'm, I'm gonna go first. First, uh, Doc Smith. I hope because you know we always purchase copies of the books. So I'm gonna send you my address. So I because I don't have a copy of Doctor Phil's book. So I'm like, I'm gonna jump on your copies real quick. But again, we, yeah, we we definitely want to promote that. Uh, Doctor Phil, thanks for coming on. Thanks for dropping the knowledge. My my closing is simple. You know, I, I think I started in the opening. You know, th- this this new journey I'm excited about for me personally, but. What I'm most excited about is to continue this engagement um, with with Ball and Doc Smith and Ray, um, just because as black males and I, Ray, you know, Ray our producer, I texted about earlier in the week. Man, this stuff, this stuff in these in these uh these 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 black people being killed by the police, man. That's the the young man that got killed in the high school bathroom or the bathroom, you know, it's it's just a heavy time, and so but it's good to be around positive black men in the work the same as me and connecting. So I'm, I'm appreciative for that. And so even in that journey, I'm going to make sure that I continue to tap into that a lot more because this space is safe and, and it's comfortable and, and it's a place where I can truly be free. And so I appreciate you brothers and all the other brothers that I connect with. And let's continue to grow and develop in this space because this is a tough time we're going through right now.
0: So, I'm, I'm going to jump in as I will let Barr close this out. out. Um, first of all, I, you know, I want to shout out my co-host david mcguire Uh, if you ain't checked out the recess podcast yet you need to go check it out he's doing big things at indy so i do want to shout him out in the work he's doing uh down there in indy uh once again shout out to ball for helping me co-facilitate this past weekend at the liberate conference and then i want to talk you know just about dr fields who every time i've ran into him at any you know organization or any function he's always shown up authentically as you and you see i rock the being black is dope uh but i want to talk about uh it's a comment he made at the last conference we was at. And he was talking about the book. And um, he said he woke up that morning, early in the morning and had someone in his mind. So he sat down, you know, back in the day when you had a tape or a CD, you had that bonus track. So he went ahead and dropped the bonus track for the book. And I was just like, that's, that's, kind of, I mean, that's the kind of leadership we need. You know, some people that can relate to the struggle of the black people, you know, uh, and what we bring to the table from an entertainment standpoint and how we change that into an educational thing as well. Uh, I do want to shout out to all the educators out there. Next week is Teacher Appreciation Week. And this has been a hell of a year for educators, so I just want to shout out all the teachers out there and everything that you've come through this year. Um, I watched a video yesterday uh, of a teacher. I can't exactly remember where it was at, but basically he was resigning in front of the board and he kind of just let the board have it. You know, and just talked about how, you know, they were making decisions um, about things going on in the classroom that were kind of counterproductive because they were sitting on a stage eight feet apart from each other, but yet they want kids to sit next to each other in classrooms. Um, so just really shout out to you teachers who did everything they could to make sure kids still got educated this this week. And as you know, always know, we do the book giveaway. So if you hit me up on Twitter, I do have five copies plus one because I can get David one. Uh, but I do got five copies of the book. So hit me up on Twitter and I'll make sure you get that copy of the book, um, How to Achieve Educational Equity by my boy, Dr.
1: Fields. Go ahead, but I want All hear-
2: right, I'm going to finish up. Finish it up. All right. Uh, I got my copies as well. You can hit me up. I got four, you know, four for the founders. So please reach out at Demetrius underscore ball on Twitter. And uh, I got you. Uh, Just to close out, I I was able to spend all day in classrooms today. Uh, I was I was. Finish up those evals. Thank you, Dr. Fields, for bringing that up. Finish up those evals for the year, but also able to just have conversations with students and just talk about, you know, how we show up at school every day. And it it was the motivation that I needed uh, to, to continue on and finish this school year strong because we've got some impressive young people. They're thoughtful they want to be engaged they appreciate being back on campus as i mentioned before we're back on campus for everybody that wants to be four days a week and uh it's it's been awesome for them to for our students and for our staff to be engaged that way and so being able to be in classes is is why you know i'm here to to feed off of these students and to support them provide them the opportunities that they need uh and so Keep that fire going, everybody. We appreciate you listening to the Engage podcast, getting that PD, this free PD that we provide every two weeks. Uh, su- super appreciative of Dr. Fields spending some time with us and, and, and helping us dig into this equity piece uh, because we all need it. It's it's not just work. It's not just the work. It should be a part of who we are, not just what we say we are. Yep.
1: Happy Delta Versary to Doc Lotz. Happy Deltaversity. Happy Deltaversity, yes. Doc.
2: Thanks, Doc, for
1: always supporting the boys. Always. And this has been another episode of the Engaged Podcast. You will see us here soon. Again, episode 21, Free PD. Until the meantime, share, like, comment with your folks, and we'll see y'all again. Peace. Go mob. Peace.